happy, happy new year. I got in trouble for saying happy Christmas because apparently that's just not something you say. You say Merry Christmas and people would look at me like I was being weird for saying Happy Christmas. Uh, I'm going to carry on though. Uh, but I am allowed to say Happy New Year, Happy New Year. Uh, I hope you've had a great break. What is your vision for your new year? New year, new you. It's a whole new decade and everything's going to be different because the year ends with a zero. It really is. Uh, actually, someone made it clear to me that the decade starts next year because we don't start, we start with one, don't we? So it actually starts in 21, and we end at 10, so we end at 30, so we've still got one more year left of this decade. <laughs> anyway, new year, new you. We make a lot of decisions at this time of year, don't we? Uh, because we're energized by the new start, and we want to believe that this year, this one, this one's definitely going to be the best ever. And my prayer is that it is. Uh, but leaving aside logically that New Year's resolutions probably, um, if they worked, wouldn't exist because we'd have just done them. Uh, and also the cold hard facts that 64% of New Year's resolutions don't make it past January. 80% of New Year's resolutions don't make it past Valentine's Day. But are you, nevertheless, super enthused? Or are things beginning five days in to wane a little bit? I actually am very excited about the new year. I'm always very excited about the new year. This is my time of the year. I like the new year. It's exciting. And if um, anyone were to ask someone I work with, like my wife, what I am like, they would say that now and again I'm quite trying because I have a thousand new ideas every five minutes. I've already got bored of the things that I was very excited about yesterday, and I'm seriously considering why don't we move the church to a disused cargo ship off the coast of Catalina? Wouldn't that be amazing? We could call it the ship of fools. It would be beautiful. I'm very excited by lots of things. I want everything to be done by yesterday. I like moving fast. I like running with ideas and seeing what happens. But... And this to me particularly, this is what Hannah and I have been feeling uh, that God has been saying to us about the church, both personally but also for us corporately. Do not rush. But to be clear, by not rushing, I do not mean either going slowly or not going fast. It is not necessarily a better thing to go slow than it is to go fast. Sometimes it's much better to go fast than it is to go slow. For instance, when your house is burning down, do not spend the time going, I think we should wait on the Lord. I think we should just see what he's trying to say to us through this fire. I think we should, you know, maybe just not rush into calling the fire brigade. You want to call the fire brigade because people's lives are in danger. And similarly, of course, when we have very good news, we want to share that quickly. Uh, famously in the New Testament, when the women visit the empty tomb of Jesus, they meet an angel who says, go quickly, 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 go and tell all the disciples. And they rush off because sometimes it's best to go fast and sometimes it's best to go slow. Not rushing, though, is neither about going fast or going slow. Rather, not rushing is about not grasping. It's about not striving and pushing and driving at things that are not there to be driven. And throughout the um, biblical narrative, the people of God are consistently confronted with this choice. Do they trust? Do they wait? Do they love God? Or do they grasp? 
and do they strive and do they rush God? And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. And I probably want to talk about the more fundamental big decisions that we may have made or may be making at the moment, rather than are we going to drink more water, are we going to get off social media, uh, those sorts of things. I want to talk about big decisions that you may be contemplating or have made recently or actually even a long time ago. Things like, am I going to change my career? Am I going to move to a different city? Are we going to try for children? Are we going to get married? Am I going to go back to school? Those sorts of things. And so if you know that those are things that are kind of uh, whirling around your head at the moment, maybe you could keep them in mind as we carry on. Because the question I want to ask all of us, including myself, in fact, especially myself, who is prone to running at things, is are we waiting with God for these things or are we grasping at them for ourselves? And let me illustrate this uh, from a very famous episode of one of the most famous people in the Bible, uh, Abraham. As I'm sure many of you will know, the story of Abraham. Abraham was there minding his own business, uh, probably worshipping some sort of sun god in uh, the city of Ur, which was a wealthy place in modern-day Iraq. And he was prosperous and wealthy, and then God says to him, I'm going to take you away from your father's family, and I'm going to lead you to a um, nation that I'm going to give to you, a land that will be flowing with milk and honey, and you will have thousands and thousands of descendants, too numerable to even count as many as the stars in the sky. And at that point, though, Abraham has precisely zero children, uh, and he is 75 years old, and his wife Sarah is 65 years old. Now, just quickly as an aside, the ages of the forefathers in the Old Testament are a bit problematic. I just want to acknowledge that. Abraham is said to live to 175 years, and Sarah, his wife, is supposed to give birth to Isaac at 90 years old, and that's quite old. Now, whether we take these um, ages literally or assume there is a slightly different way of um, dating things at the time, I actually don't think is very important at all. My personal view is Abraham definitely a historical figure, but probably the way of age, uh, defining age at the time was slightly different. But the larger point, leaving that aside, is what the authors are saying is there is a huge, huge external force against anything that God promises to Abraham actually happening. Geography is against them. They travel a thousand miles across a desert from a land that is prosperous and wealthy to go to a land Canaan that is not prosperous and wealthy. In fact, as soon as they arrive, there is a famine. So not very good for being a beautiful land where a whole new nation will be born. And of course, biology is against them not necessarily because of their ages, although the author is very um, uh, is at pains to make it clear that actually they have children in their old age, they are very old, and this is quite extraordinary. But for the more basic fact that Sarah is barren, this is what is said about Sarah, poor old Sarah, the only thing that she's introduced as is, Sarah is Abraham's wife, and she's barren, lucky old Sarah. It would have been likely that they would have been married um, by the time that Sarah was at 16 at the latest. So plenty of time to have had children before 
Abraham hears the call of God, and yet they haven't because Sarah is barren. So it's in the context of these circumstances that Abraham hears and responds to the call of God. He believes what God has said to him, and he goes with it. And it's why we regard him as the father of us all. And he is, it's why Paul calls him the archetype of faith. This is the man of true faith, because despite all the circumstances, everything saying this is not going to happen, nevertheless, Abraham exhibits extraordinary faith. Until, of course, he doesn't. And it's at that point that I want to pick up the story, where Abraham is beginning to abandon the plan. So this is Genesis chapter 16, Verse 1. I'll read the first four verses and then skip on to verse 15. Now, Sarai, who later becomes Sarah, Abraham, later becomes Abraham. Now, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had left an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah took his wife, sorry, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Verse 15, so Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son she had borne. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So it's not that Abraham completely foregoes or gives up on his faith. He doesn't abandon everything. He doesn't go back to Ur and go, well, that was a big mistake. Let's carry on here. He just takes some of the details into his own hands. It's sort of like he's saying to God, I, I, do, I think you said... Uh, Sarah, my wife, should be you know, the mother of all my children. But I realize now that you actually said Hagar, my Egyptian slave. I did, I know, shh, 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 shh. No, 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 you did. But it's important to realize the pressure, the pressure that they would have been under. They have left their home country. They have left all their family. They've crossed a desert. And they've arrived in a land that is then struck by famine. And nothing is happening to suggest that they have done the right thing. The pressure that they were under. What would their neighbours be saying? What? You're going, you're going to be the nation. You're going to be the father of a huge nation. You're old and your wife is barren and you've come here. And it's also important to realise that what Abraham and Sarah decide to do namely have a child by their Egyptian slave, Hagar, was actually completely socially, completely morally, and completely legally acceptable at the time. This was actually common practice. I would imagine their friends would be going, oh, you're going to have a child with Hagar? Oh, I thought, you know, why have you waited so long? Of course you should. You poor, poor things. (laughs) My script says poo things. Uh, (laughs) You poo poo things. But what is socially and morally and legally acceptable for the rest of their culture is not acceptable for them because God has chosen something different for them. 
And really, this is what it means to be living as a Christian person. It's to live by a different set of parameters to the rest of the universe. It is to be a sign to the whole world of what faith in God actually looks like, that we are obedient to something different. Now, at times, this can look very foolish, as it does for Abraham and Sarah. But also, at times, it can look highly attractive. You know, the church, what it's really supposed to do is show the rest of the world, even if they don't believe in what we believe, going, I wish I could be part of that because it looks so good. What do you mean you actually forgive those who persecute you? You can actually do that. You can actually love your neighbours, your enemies. That's what we should be doing. People should be going, I cannot believe you don't just talk about diversity. You actually are at pains to create it, and you do create it. You don't just talk about inclusivity or non-judgmentalism. You don't just shake people's hands whilst actually despising them and then talking behind their back about them. You shake people's hands and you invite them into your home and you get to know them and you hear their story and you love them. You actually properly love them. That's what we're supposed to do. But we do, and Abraham and Sarah did have a higher calling. But it always points to the nature of the God who created a humanity for himself to, as Hannah was praying, for us to live at peace with one another. Peace not as the absence of hostility, but peace as an active thing that destroys division and hurt and pain and forgives people. Peace with him and with one another which sometimes means not just avoiding ungodly behavior, but also means avoiding things that, however godly or noble they look, are not the things that God is actually asking us to do at this moment, and therefore we need to just not rush. Uh, the positive side of uh, my character that I alluded to earlier is that I do have lots and lots of ideas, and just now and again, some of them are actually from God. It's amazing. Uh, we uh, were meeting in Culver City, and I felt God say to me, you should move to Los Feliz. No one else thought that was a good idea. Everyone else thought that was a terrible idea. But we did it anyway, and I kind of feel like God probably has blessed us as a result. Now, a stop clock is obviously right like twice a, a day, and maybe that's me. But I do have a gajillion different ideas. And Hannah and I have been um, thinking a lot about this recently. And actually, really, since we've been here, what do we really want this church to do? And we've got lots of ideas, lots and lots of ideas. We want to uh, set up an uh, early intervention parenting center for people from all social demographics so they can come and hear about this incredible teaching that we've come across, which really helps them uh, learn to teach their kids empathy, which is absolutely vital for connectedness, for in an increasingly unconnected, socially unconnected world, the people to be actually able to bring their kids up, to have an emotional health that allows them to thrive. And connected to that, we want to have a sort of cooperative 
um, uh, childcare thing that would also be connected to uh, this other idea that we've been having that we want us to do, which is to uh, help people off the streets uh, by giving them the job of creating and cooking beautiful high-end soups that we then sell to rich people in high-end supermarkets. It's going to be brilliant. I want to call it Soup Kitchen. I don't know if that's a good idea. But anyway, that's another idea. And we also want to create... The music's brilliant here. The music really is brilliant here. But Christian music in general is not. And I would like us to do an in-house kind of um, Christian music thing that is, on the one hand, actually about Jesus, not about mountains or oceans. It's going to be about Jesus... But it's also going to be musically pleasing. But above all, it's going to be nothing to do with putting people on some sort of pedestal or giving them a platform. And it's not going to be about making money. That's another thing I want to do. I also want to set up a podcast. This is something we were talking about. We wanted to set up a podcast that does a great job of deconstructing unhelpful theology and a view of the Bible that people have grown up with. Deconstructs it, but doesn't just deconstruct it so that all people are left with is like a rubble of their faith and the Enneagram. But it also... I love the Enneagram, by the way. It also rebuilds it with the spirit so that they're not just left with rubble, they're left with a home, a spirit-filled, Jesus-centered, historical person who actually walked and talked and lived on this earth and died and was the Son of God and rebuilds their life into something glorious and eternal and real. And I want us to move the church to a disused cargo ship (laughs) off the coast of Catalina. Don't you think it would be great? Everyone would get a little boat there. <laughs> Actually, isn't that how Scientology started? I think it is. Yeah, okay, let's ignore that. <laughs> These are just some of the things that, that um, we've been talking about and we actually think we should do. And do you know, some of the things we will do, but what God is saying to us is do not rush. Do not push and do not strive for any of these things because to do so would actually be disobedient. No doubt, once Hagar had given birth to Ishmael, Abraham and Sarah would have gone, see God, look, it wasn't that hard. We've done it. We are one step closer and it's a big step closer to actually having all the promises you've given to us. And in fact, Abraham, if you read on, finds it very difficult to give up the idea of Ishmael not being that person. He pleads with God to accept him. And this is what it's like when we take things into our own hands. Often they do turn out quite well. At least to start with, they often turn out quite well. But it's not really the point. The point is God is saying something else. And what he's really saying is, will you just please trust me? The problem is, we do not like uncertainty as a species. We do not like waiting as a species. And a lot of time, even though we say, oh yes, God, you're definitely in charge, our actions betray that God is definitely not in charge, we are in charge, and we actually think, do you know what, God, I've got this, I can do this pretty well. But while some of the consequences for Abraham turn out well to start with, they don't really stay like that. Hagar starts to despise Sarah. 
Sarah blames Abraham for this. Abraham absolves himself of all responsibility like a coward. So Sarah takes it upon herself to start beating and mistreating Hagar, and Hagar then flees. And as you may be aware, the sort of um, uh, the story continues that uh, Ishmael and Isaac are sort of at each other's throats, and you can sort of trace the uh, Jew-Arab continued conflict to that. All good reasons to heed the warnings of impatience and striving and grasping at things, even good things, even good things that God is not actually doing. But let's remember, this is who we are. This is actually what we tend to do as a species. It's the fundamental universal sin of humankind. There from the beginning. Hannah always wants me to do this disclaimer. So I'm going to do this disclaimer. I'm not totally sure that the story of Adam and Eve is a historical document. Okay? Anyway, at the beginning, Adam and Eve... What is their fundamental sin? It is not, despite what you were told in Sunday school, disobedience. It is not disobedience. If it were disobedience, it would mean that God was some sort of high school principal who is looking to catch them out and wants them to like, just obey that. that. The only thing he's really, or the primary thing he's really interested in is obedience. That's what he's looking for. It's obedience, obedience, obedience. And he's going around saying, hey, you must obey me, you must obey me. If that was their primary sin, it's not. Read the story. He walks with them. He talks with them. He is a friend with them. He asks them to co-create with them. He is not a high school teacher. He is a friend to them. So the fundamental sin of Adam and Eve is not disobedience, it is independence. When they grasp at the tree of good and knowledge, the thing that God has told them, you don't need to go there, it's not because he wants them to obey them, it's because he knows that they already have it. They already have the knowledge of good and evil. He has made them like himself, knowing good and evil. They are already like that, and so when they grasp at it, what they are saying is, I want this, but independent of you. I want to be my own God. I do not need you. And this is our problem. We want to be like him, but without him. So what Hannah and I have felt like we've uh, seen God showing us about bread is that rather than lurch and grasp at small or big things, new shiny things on the horizon, what he's calling us to do is to breathe and to trust and to be with him and to love him and to go deeper into what he's actually already doing and has been doing for us and with us and through us now for a while. So in practical terms, it's really just going deeper into these Sunday services. Spirit-filled, biblical, worshipful, inclusive Sunday services. And it's really going deeper into those three core things that Hannah talked about earlier. City groups, Alpha, and Serve the City. But it's also, um, on a more pertinent level, why over the next seven weeks or so, we've put together a teaching that we want to um, invite you to really uh, go with, throw yourself into. And really, it's going to be focused on our emotional and um, uh, inner 
health when it comes to the experience of God. We're going to call this, this is Hannah's um, idea, I am absolving myself of this, I don't like this title, but this, no, I have lots of better ones, uh, but, but this is the one that won somehow, The Holiness of Health. It's got to be the worst title. Yeah, look, look at the reaction, nothing. It's going to be called The Holiness of Health. We love each other, don't you worry. The Holiness of Health. What I am excited about is how I think this is going to have a transformative uh, effect uh, for every single one of us if we're able to throw ourselves into it, of how, one, we are um, able to relate to one another, two, how we're able to relate to God, and three, how we're able to relate to ourselves. You see, in general, and if you've been around church for a while, you'll know that this is true. In general, discipleship in church goes something like this. You meet Jesus, you join a church, the church tells you to do these things. Join a group for community, give your money to show that you're a disciple, and, uh, and then serve with your gifts. And then personally, read the Bible, pray, and when the opportunity arises, talk to someone about Jesus. Those things. Now, all of those things are good things. I recommend all of them. They're good for us to grow up as disciples of Jesus. However, here's the problem. How many times have you heard or said or believed the following thing? My non-believing, non-Christian friends just seem healthier and kinder and nicer than my Christian ones. How many times have you heard or believed or said that and it been completely true? I'm going to say probably quite a few. And the truth is, it's true because it is actually true. They are. They're kinder and they're nicer and they're friendlier and they seem more healthy and put together because they are. Here's more of the problem. I know this is only one metric and I know in every instance there are hugely um, complex factors going into it. But the divorce rate in this country is about half. Do you know amongst Christians, it's higher than the rest of the um, public. Do you know which states it's highest in? It's the Bible Belt ones. Arkansas, Alabama, Kentucky, Oklahoma, they win. Do you know where it's lowest? The godless ones. New York, Vermont, Illinois, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. The same is generally true for the stats on addiction, mental health, and general levels of happiness. I am sad to say this. I didn't want to know this. I do now know it, so it's given me a problem. Christians are actually no really better off. And yet, we have Jesus. And so, something has gone wrong. It's almost as if, and again, I know I'm being very selective with the data, but it's almost as if just joining a small group, just giving money to a church, just serving with your gifts, just reading your Bible, just praying, just evangelizing, is not actually making people more like Jesus, and it's not getting people any healthier or happier in their Christian lives. So what is clear to me is that churches have discipled people in some very good ways, but they have neglected very important ways. We've tended to focus on our spiritual life. How's your prayer life? 
those sorts of things. Or we've tended to focus on our uh, intellectual life. How's your doctrine? Is it all all right? Check that all off. Or we've tended to focus on our social life. Are you part of community? You've got to be part of community. And now and again, we've also focused on our physical life. I remember being in a meeting with a um, pastor and he was talking to his staff team, and he was basically going, I see it as a huge sin, a terrible sin, not to have gone to the gym five times a week. And I looked around at his staff team, who, let's just say, could have gone with going to the gym. And I was thinking, there is a lot of sin in your staff team. <laughs> I'm running a marathon. <laughs> But what about our emotional health? Why do you get so angry? You look lonely. Tell me about what is making you sad. Now, I am not suggesting we psychologize the gospel in the same way I'm not suggesting that we restrict it to anything of our human boxes. It is far too powerful to ever, be, ever allow itself to, be, uh, to have that done to it. But I am saying that unless we understand and let God into some of the more basic ways that we have been shaped on an emotional level, we will not have much hope of being changed. Jesus, our example, was after all fully human and healthily displayed the whole range of human emotions. He shed tears, he was filled with joy, he grieved, he was angry, he was sad, he felt compassion, he felt sorrow, he showed astonishment and wonder, and he felt distress. So, we need to bring the deepest parts of ourselves to him and ask him to recreate us in his image. Otherwise, we will only be scratching at the surface when it comes to actually looking like him and looking like the people he created us to be. As I'm sure you're aware, we can memorize whole swathes of the New Testament, but still remain fundamentally angry and critical in our hearts. We can pray and fast for hours and hours and hours, but still be greedy and self-centered. We can give all our time and money and skills to the church and still be depressed and lonely. What we're after as followers of Jesus is the whole thing, is allowing him to change the whole thing. Now, it will get messy. It's going to get messy. Because who wants to expose this stuff? But I want to challenge us all, including myself. Isn't it going to be worth it if we're actually fundamentally changed by his spirit? It's like he puts his spirit in us, ready to come to work in us, but we're not letting him into various bits that are actually stopping him from revolutioning us, revolutionizing us. So let's let him in. It will get messy, but it will be good. No one has to do this, of course. You're here on your own terms. So to return to end with where we started, what about those decisions, those big ones? Why don't you just recall them to your mind now, the things you're thinking about? Are you grasping at them? I was thinking about one particular um, instance of grasping in our lives, in my life in particular. Um, I think I probably thought that we were going to plant a church at some point, but I didn't really know where, never knew where. 
working in a church in London. But I was getting more and more restless. And I thought, I don't want to stay here because I don't like it. I need to move. So let's go and plant a church. I have no idea how to plant a church. I haven't had enough training. And also, I don't know where we're supposed to plant a church. But I really like New York City. Let's go there. Uh, I knew a few people there. We went to New York City. Uh, I went one time and uh, met a few people. And they all said, no, no. And I went, no, you don't know. Uh, and then uh, we went again. And then uh, when Hannah and I went. And then we tried to put on a meeting for people interested in this church plant um, in New York City. This is in about 2009, 10, something like that. We went. And to say the idea was half-baked was very generous to the idea. This wasn't even like quarter-baked. It wasn't even um, raw. It was still living. It was a living cow that we were trying to bake. Uh, and we turned up, and it was hands down the worst Christian meeting I have ever been in. There were people there who hate, like literally hated each other, did not want to be in the same room, and then they found themselves in a room together. There was no way that this church plant was ever going to happen. And we left, and it was like um, we'd sort of had a trauma. No one said anything. Everyone just wanted to pretend that that never, ever happened. And then when I got back, I went, I wonder actually if we are supposed to do this, because I really want to do this. In my experience, we, we grasp at things for two reasons. One... We're too afraid to be honest with God and let him in. And this probably comes from, deep down, a mistrust of him. That we don't actually believe that he's nice and he likes us. As we've often said, our jobs would be so much easier if I could just nail that into your head. We could just give up. That if you could actually believe that God is nice and he likes you. Not that he's loving. Of course he's loving, but he's nice and he likes you. He's interested in you. That he's good. That you could actually trust him. It comes from that. And it also comes from not being comfortable to actually let our own inner motivations in. And to assess what we actually what's driving our behavior what was driving my behavior was I just want to get out and I just want to do anything other than what I'm currently doing but and I'll end with this God is the God because of Jesus because of the cross that is constantly constantly coming back to us and asking to redeem things in our lives. If you are sitting there thinking, I made that mistake, I did that thing, and now I am dragging that round with me for the rest of my life, can I just tell you that that can end today? It has already ended on the cross. You just have to receive it. The whole Christian message is not about what we do. It's what we receive. Do you want to receive Jesus? Do you want to receive his new plan? He's constantly coming up with new plans for you. He does have plans for you. And he's constantly working with us in our terrible sheep-like ability to go off the straight and narrow over and over and over again. So don't carry around bad decisions. What he promises Hagar and Ishmael, 
is that Ishmael will also be a great nation. He will be blessed. So even if you've made bad decisions, he'll still take them on. He'll still redeem them. That's what he's like. But also you can trust him that he cares about you and that he wants the best for you. 